0: Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 19, Take It on the Ote Side. How long, how long could it slide? Before the convergence of social, political, and economic developments in the lowlands ended in violence and the imposition of one man on an entire region. On the 23rd of September, 1408, a combined allied army of the Duke of Burgundy, the Count of Holland, and the Bishop-elect of Liège marched against the people of Liège. They had erupted into an all-out revolt against their ruler. At the Battle of Aute, the Ligeois were utterly crushed and in the aftermath, the citizens of Liège were made to pay dearly by the victorious nobles. The town was stripped of its privileges, and draconian punishments were placed upon it. The retribution was so harsh that the bishop-elect of Liège earned the nickname John the Pitiless. But the real triumph belonged to another John, the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy, Count of Flanders and Artois, who with this battle capped off a series of power plays which began with the very public assassination of his biggest political rival, Louis of Orléans. John the Fearless asserted himself as the dominant power broker in the Low Countries, showing the ever-restless towns what might happen to them should they ever again rebel against his authority. Like we mentioned at the end of the last episode, the previous Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Bold, and his wife Margaret of Flanders had organised for their lands to be divided up between their three sons. Philip's politicking had also ensured that the duchies of Brabant and Limburg, conveniently ruled by his wife's auntie Joanna, would pass to the family too, though not to their eldest son. In the space of two years, Philip, Margaret and Joanna all died, and except for a mild bit of wheeling and dealing by the three sons, they all respected the arrangement that their parents had made for them. The eldest, John, inherited the title Duke of Burgundy, as well as Count of the Imperial part of Burgundy, Count of Flanders, and Count of Artois. The second son, Anton, became Duke of Brabant and Limburg, as well as Margrave of Antwerp, and the third son, Philip, Well, he got the hand-me-down titles, Count of Rethel and Nevers, which the two eldest had held until they got these better ones. Older brothers are always the same. John, the beloved heir and first son, was born in 1371 into a world that was coming ever more under the thrall of his father. Not much is known about his early years other than that he grew up in a ducal residence on the outskirts of the capital of Burgundy. Dijon. In the 1380s, the Duke of Burgundy had been concerned with maintaining the balance between the needs of the French realm, which he ruled as regent, of Flanders, which he ruled as count, and of the English realm, which provided the wool, upon which his Flemish domains depended so heavily. John first accompanied his father Philip to Paris in 1384, But his first real act of historical significance was being married off as a 14-year-old to a woman eight years older than him, Margaret of Bavaria. This was one half of the epic, let's get my children to marry your children, double wedding diplomacy that had been organized between the ruling families of Flanders and Burgundy and Holland, Zeeland and Hannau. We talked about this in the last episode. John followed his father around on various trips to the French court in Paris and on military campaigns, learning by example the skills that would be necessary to juggle the various hats his father would eventually pass on to him. John didn't go to the Low Countries until 1394, when he went with his mother to help in negotiations with the towns of Flanders. Philip the Bold, as we well know, was a master of politicking and was a man who understood the value of honour and prestige to a person in his position, and nothing screamed honour and prestige in this very Christian world of chivalric honour like leading a crusade against non-Christians. He began angling towards a unified action that would include knights and men from all over Europe. However, a part of his motivation was to lessen the tensions between England and France, who at this time were enjoying one of their few periodic truces. Philip, with his low country territories nestled between them, could only benefit from such an allied action. Then chuck in all the buckets of glory a crusade would grant him, and Philip set about manufacturing one. He even had choices, as there was crusading a going on in Northern Europe against so-called Saracens, who were Lithuanian pagans around Prussia and the Baltics, periodically rising in resistance against the encroachment of Christendom, and there was crusading a going on in the east against the rising Ottoman Empire. Philip sent somebody to go and gauge the situation. After careful consulting and discussion, it was decided that heading east and coming to the assistance of the King of Hungary, a bloke called Sigismund, would achieve the best results as far as enhancing his family's prestige and honour went as well as further engendering peaceful relations between England and France. Utilising the wealth of Flanders to basically pay for the whole thing, a great expedition was slowly, if not carefully arranged, which would eventually embark in April of 1396 from Dijon. Although Philip did not end up leading the crusade himself, his son John at age 24 and also a high prince of Christendom, was the perfect person to be given nominal charge of what ended up being one of the last great crusades. He was not, however, the perfect person to be given actual charge of this major military operation, given that he didn't really have a lot of experience up until this point and he received less than stellar advice from way too many people keen on telling him what to do. The whole crusade was a disaster, climaxing with Christian forces being overrun and slaughtered en masse at the Battle of Nicopolis. John, along with a bunch of other knights and Christian soldiers, was taken captive and held hostage for over a year until the towns of Flanders once again stepped up, fronted up with enough money, and paid his sizable ransom and got his release. By being held captive for ages, after a calamitous military defeat, John had managed to emulate the defining occurrence of his famous father's younger days. Like Philip before him, John could now bulk out his medieval LinkedIn profile substantially. Before turning 30, he'd been taken hostage, held for a substantial time, and survived due to his fortitude and courage, never mind the hefty ransom raised on his behalf. In doing this, He gained a tidy little epithet to stick on the end of his name, just like his dad had done, and he would come to be known as Jean Saint-Peur, Jan Zondefreys, John the Fearless. So John had quite a formidable reputation already when he took over the ducal throne of Burgundy in 1404, but the position he inherited included not only the high political offices within the Low Countries— and the French realm that came attached to the titles of Duke of Burgundy and Count of Flanders, but also the political feuds that his father had become caught up in during his final years. Remember that the King of France, Charles VI, was prone to bouts of insanity, during which time the so-called Princes of the Blood, who were the members of the French royal family, would compete against each other for control of the Council of Regency a body set up to rule France in the king's stead during periods of his craziness. Most crucially, control of the Council of Regency meant control of France's purse strings. Philip the Bold, who had been the uncle of the king, had siphoned funds off the royal treasury to Burgundy for years, and spent most of the end of his life immersed in a fierce stoush for fiscal and political control in France with his other nephew, Louis of Orleans, the brother of the king. Typically, like most politics at this time, and perhaps even still today, it was all very inbred. There were also varied layers of power politics going on in France, and especially in and around the royal court. They included not only the princes of the blood, those with familial relation to the king, but also municipal administrators, clergy, nouveau riche merchants, and so on. Many different players had their own agendas and in the course of challenging each other for the wealth of the state, the Dukes of Burgundy and Orléans also had to contend for the support and alliance of those different players. Almost immediately following the death of Philip the Bold, Louis of Orléans made his move. He organized a marriage between his son Charles to his brother Charles's daughter, Isabel. What makes this spot of... Incest, even more unpalatable, is that there were strong and persistent rumors throughout France that Louis was having an affair with his brother Charles's wife, the Queen Consort, Isabeau of Bavaria. So basically, he married his son to his lover's and his brother's daughter. Ugh. Louis of Orléans had a generally salacious reputation and seems to have been a pretty loose unit. A decade earlier, in 1393, he had accidentally killed four dancers at a masquerade ball when, despite strict orders to the contrary, he brought a torch to a performance in which masked dancers in highly flammable costumes entertained the crowd. Unbeknownst to everybody, his brother, the king, was one of the anonymous dancers and was one of only two who survived. This occasion became known as the Ball of the Burning Men, which would be an awesome name for a heavy metal symphony. Louis was also a womanizer. Not only was he apparently sleeping with his brother's wife, but also as many other women as he possibly could. There's a painting, which we will link to in the show notes, based off a popular, albeit possibly apocryphal story, called Duke of Orleans Showing His Lover. This depicts Louis lying on a bed with a woman holding her dress up over her head, exposing her naked body to another man, and basically telling him, a scarlet starlet and she's in my bed, and asking him to judge her beauty. The man, well, he was the woman's husband. Anyway, the canny part of Louis' cunningly arranged wedding of his son to his niece was that the marriage came with a dowry of 300,000 francs, This was an incredible sum and allowed him to further solidify himself as the new power in France in the wake of Philip the Bold's death. Louis now did what Philip had long been doing and began lining his own pockets with the revenues of the state and gifts granted to him by the unfit king for whom he ruled. Accordingly, the new Duke of Burgundy, John the Fearless, was left bereft of the sort of income his father had so long enjoyed. In his book, John the Fearless, Richard Vaughan tabulates and compares the last two years of Philip the Bold's income with the first two years of his son's, and shows that it had dropped from 387,541 francs to just 39,000. A depletion of roughly 90%, and another indicator of how insanely large a dowry Louis of Orléans had managed to procure from his sometimes insane but royal brother. John, in Paris, and now put to the test, was not merely going to be able to step into his father's shoes and take over the central role of government in France. He had to bide his time and slowly gather support against the Duke of Orleans. It wasn't all that difficult to find people who would support somebody against Louis, as he was not that popular especially amongst the wider public and especially considering his enthusiasm for raising new taxes, sleeping with as many women as he could, and spending money on himself. His unpopularity is evidenced in his need to send out a royal decree that promised the greatest degree of punishment to anybody who was caught writing, distributing, or fixing defamatory pamphlets against him to gates, doors, or houses, which is pretty specific. Presumably trees were fine, then? John the Fearless was the son of a master politician, however, and he was now given a chance to show his pedigree. He began to position himself as the antithesis to Louis. Anti-tax, anti-sex scandal, anti-setting dances on fire with torches, and of a generally more agreeable character. He began upping the ante and basically lobbying the various people who mattered in the halls of French power. He took a tactical move from his father's playbook, giving generous gifts of Burgundian wine that would amply source up potential supporters in Paris. He organized a meeting of very many vested interest groups there in early February 1405 and obviously sold himself exceptionally well. Let's jump to Vim Blockmans and Walter Prevenir, who, as usual, have put it the best. Quote, John began to portray himself as the opponent of Louis, as the champion of social discussions, of a contract with the subjects, of judicial reform in the name of the bien commune, and of fiscal reform against the extravagance of his rival. Prominent members of the Parlement of Paris wrote memoranda noting how touched they were by John's affecting sympathy for the social situation of the people. End quote. While this was all happening, another factor that came into play was the schism going on in the Western Church. In the first half of the 14th century, this had meant Western Christendom had divided itself into Team Avignon in France and Team Rome in Italy. This was resolved briefly in 1376, before reigniting again in 1378. It is all extremely murky, as different interest groups in different towns and cities across all of Western Europe supported different teams. In the Low Countries, people picked teams usually based on whether they were pro-England or pro-France, the two countries generally supporting opposite Pope teams due to their mutual enmity to one another. People also often switched sides based on which team their rivals supported, or which side supported their rivals. By the 1390s, most people were keen to see an end to the schism, but it was proving very difficult to get both popes to step down in order to have a unifying vote, and this was definitely the case for Benedict XIII, the highly unpopular anti-pope in France. Scholars and theologians around Paris in particular were steadfastly against him and began to publicly argue for why Benedict was in fact an antipope. Remarkably, this had such an impact in the highest ranks of the French court that in 1398 France withdrew obedience from Team French Pope. By the time of the conflict between John the Fearless and Louis of Orléans, the Pope in Italy, Innocent III, had begun to enjoy an increase in popularity in France while Benedict's stock continued to drop. Louis, an unpopular man himself, had continued to support Benedict Thirteenth despite the official position of the French crown. The shrewd political thing for Louis to do now would be to drop Benedict like the hot potato that he was. Instead, Louis maintained his support for him. This worked to the advantage of John the Fearless, who updated his 15th century Facebook profile picture with a Team Roman Pope Innocent III frame. He can now balance his role as a champion of the Bien commun in France, having picked a particularly popular papal position preferred by plenty of people in Paris, with his role as the Count of Flanders. Team Roman Pope was the side of the English, and therefore the side towards which his big, rich cloth towns like Ghent and Bruges were most naturally inclined. So John was manoeuvring himself into a positive position. Be this as it may, however, it became clear to him that staying in Paris in close proximity with his pissed off, cashed up, different Pope supporting cousin who did not appreciate this threat to his power was no longer a good idea. So John packed up and headed off to the Low Countries in March 1405. Just as his mother died, and he officially became the new Count of Flanders. Upon becoming the Count of Flanders, John the Fearless was, in time-honoured Dutch tradition, presented with a list of grievances from the representatives of the four members of Flanders. In case you've forgotten, the four members of Flanders were the three big cloth-making towns, Bruges, Ghent, and Ypres, as well as a kind of rural area outside of Bruges. John was well aware of the importance of the big powers in Flanders. As well as having been present as a young man to help his mother in negotiations with them, John had also literally had his freedom purchased back by them after the disaster of Nicopolis. So when the big towns demanded that John and his wife live in Flanders, that the administration of Flanders take place in the Flemish language rather than French, and take place in Flemish Flanders rather than the French-speaking part— and to hurry up and figure out a trade deal with the English, John agreed to all of it. Isn't it pleasant for a change to see the Count of Flanders and the big towns actually agree with each other? The Council of Flanders was moved from Lille to Aldenarde, and then soon after to Ghent. And when John was out of the county, his wife, Margaret of Bavaria, ruled in his place. When questions to the council, who spoke predominantly French, were asked in Flemish, the council would answer in Flemish. All of these concessions to the Flemish identity, as well as the extremely liberal approach that John maintained as regarded Anglo-Flemish relations, is really indicative of how much he valued the stability of Flanders. He understood what a tinderbox it had historically been, and that the embers of rebellion had never truly burned out. John also set about making and cementing alliances that would help him in his struggle for power in France. In the Low Countries, this was based on the work done 20 years earlier by his father in the marriage alliance between the houses of Valois-Burgundy and the Bavarian branch of the Wittelsbach clan, who were the counts of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. In July 1405, John arranged a triple alliance between himself, his brother Anton, who was the governor and future Duke of Brabant, and their brother-in-law, who hailed from that Wittelsbach family, William VI of Bavaria, Count of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. In addition to this alliance, he also had the support of the Counts of both Namur and Cleves, as well as the younger brother of the Wittelsbachs, a guy called John of Bavaria. We are going to hear a lot about John of Bavaria later in this and future episodes, He was the extremely contentious Bishop-Elect of Liege, at this point around 21 years old, and he had a very bright and very violent future in front of him. So remember that name. About a month later, as an Allied force was being assembled in Arras, John the Fearless received summons from the King of France himself. In one of his less crazy periods, he seemed to be seeking an end to the conflict between the Princes of the Blood, between the Duke of Burgundy and the Duke of Orléans, and he called John to come back to France and take his place as a French prince in the royal court. This gave John an opportunity to go and pay homage to his liege lord as the Count of Flanders, but it also gave him a valid reason to just go back to Paris and see if the seeds that he had sown the year prior, promoting himself as the best alternative to Louis's corrupt governance, had reaped any harvest. Taking roughly a thousand men, all secretly armed, which is hilarious, they would have just looked like a really bloody huge entourage, John set off from Arras to Paris on the 14th of August, 1405. Louis of Orleans freaked out when he heard that John was on his way with this massive retinue from the Low Countries. Within three days, he had left Paris and retreated to a place that you assume in French is pronounced Melon, but in Australian English would be Mellon, about 40 kilometers southeast of the capital. He took the influential queen consort Isabeau with him. They then also made arrangements for the 10-year-old Dauphin, the heir to the throne, to be brought to them. On the 18th of August, the young boy set off with his attendants. John was still a day's ride from Paris when word reached him about the Dauphin's departure, and he set off early the next morning to the French capital. There, he was told that the Dauphin had already left. He and his men broke into a full gallop through the city, and heading southeast following the Dauphin's trail, kind of like a medieval version of stalking someone's Instagram story, They managed to catch up with him just before he reached Louis and Isabeau in Mellon. The Dauphin was not alone, but he was accompanied by another uncle, Louis of Bavaria, as well as other high-ranking nobles and guards. John approached him very carefully, with respect and acknowledgement and deference to the boy's royal highness. He entreated the ten-year-old that the best and safest place for him was still Paris, and that he had matters of personal interest he wanted to discuss with him. Louis of Bavaria spoke up, begging that John allow them to continue on. John, however, had no intention of letting such a prize as the heir to the throne go. He kicked out those in the Dauphin's retinue who were members of Louis of Orléans' household, and he ordered everybody else back to the capital. It turns out that John's judgment was sound. On their approach to Paris, the other princes of the blood, the Dukes of Berry and Bourbon, clearly annoyed that Louis had acted so outrageously as to effectively try and steal the Dauphin, came out to greet them. As did other important Parisians, members of the Paris University and other people we don't care much about because despite the nature of this episode, we are definitely not the History of France podcast. Overall, the general feeling was that John the feelers had done well in ensuring the young heirs' safety. The Dauphin was given over to the Duke of Berry, and John and Louis continued their massive, glaring contest at each other. This time, however, they also both began to assemble armies. John was being reinforced by his brother Anton, as well as his brother-in-law, the Bishop-elect of Liège, John of Bavaria. They each brought about 800 troops with them. After capturing the Dauphin, John continued to work the political side of things, composing a document listing complaints against the Duke of Orleans and urging reform against his governance. Louis countered with his own set of pamphlets condemning John, and over the next five months, a propaganda war between the two ensued. Yet, much like leaders today, and how they mean-tweet each other to no avail, these pamphlets did nothing to resolve the conflict. Eventually, in January 1406, things petered out. John was granted a share of power with Louis, and he was substituted finally into his father's former position on the Council of Regency. In return, he agreed to give up his intentions to seek governmental reform. Although this was a step forward for John, he still did not have anywhere near the primacy which his father had enjoyed. One of the most important ways of cementing power is to create a base of support across different levels of administration. When Louis took over the Council of Regency, he also removed Burgundian appointed people in various positions on the council and in other roles, and he replaced them with his own. Now, although John had a significant share of power, he was denied the ability to even the ledger of support below them. There were more people loyal to Louis than there were people loyal to John, on the council, and in other administrative positions. The next two years consisted of a truce between the two camps. We are not going to get into details too much, because honestly, we spent so much time in France this episode, that I'm almost certain that after this is recorded, I'm going to go and get some foie gras and fromage and whip up a boeuf bourguignon. A few significant marriage alliances were made which both parties could celebrate and they did together. As mentioned, Louis' son was married to King Charles VI's daughter and then John's niece, a very young girl and daughter of William VI, the Count of Hano, Holland and Zeeland called Jacqueline of Bavaria was married to Charles VI's fourth son. Jacqueline of Bavaria is also going to come up again. We just have to let her grow up a bit. And then, we will see an extraordinary life unfold. In 1406, the fact that the actual ruler was a sometimes insane king came once more to the fore. John and Louis were both suddenly ordered to attack Calais and Bordeaux, respectively, each of which was under the control of the English. The king then countermanded his own orders and left John unable to maintain payment to his troops. What is interesting in this event as concerns our focus on the low countries is that john did act as a french prince he organized preparations for an attack on the english but simultaneously he acted as the count of flanders contradictorily working to guarantee that his west flemish fortresses would remain neutral in any conflict however despite the apparent cooperation and truce between the duke of orleans and the duke of burgundy This was definitely not a stalemate that would last forever. They were both playing to win. At this stage, Louis still had the upper hand. Firstly, John was strapped for cash. One of the reasons he wanted to ensure the neutrality of Flanders was to ensure the economic strength of Flanders. Louis, on the other hand, was absolutely rolling in it. Secondly, Louis turned his attention to the Low Countries himself, and he began to put in motion several moves which were certainly designed to obstruct Burgundian power in the region. In 1402, Louis had bought the title as the Duke of Luxembourg. When, in 1406, Anton finally became the Duke of Brabant, Louis let it be known that he intended to take possession of four castles, all of which were in Brabant, but which he now claimed were rightfully Luxembourg's. The growth of Burgundian and Bavarian power in the Low Countries had not been welcomed by everyone and at this stage the greatest opposition to it could be found in Gelders and amongst the people of liege who in 1407 were in open revolt against their ruler the bishop-elect and young violent dude who we said would come up again john of bavaria louis began supporting these two opposition movements against his enemies and an alliance formed between Helders and the rebellious people of Liège in October 1407. It's even suggested that this alliance was instigated by Louis of Orléans himself. Indeed, it seems that the Duke of Orléans was moving towards encircling John, cramping him and his allies in between France, Luxembourg, Liège, and Helders. If John wanted to protect his father's gains and all that he had inherited— it would have to take drastic action. And so drastic action is what John took. On the 23rd of November, 1407, at about 8pm, Louis of Orléans was returning from visiting Queen Isabeau, who had just given birth at the Hotel Barbette in the northeast corner of Paris. One witness, a shoemaker, Jacquette, had been standing at her window, taking the washing in. She was also waiting for her husband to return home, and so she had taken note of the mounted nobleman and his party's approach down the street outside. He was playing with his glove and, she thought, singing. She turned to tend to her child, but suddenly she heard exclamation outside and somebody shouting, "'Kill him! Kill him!' She looked again out the window and saw Louis now on the street on his knees, a group of masked men armed with swords and axes had surrounded him and they began to beat him savagely, to death. According to the description given afterwards by the clerk of the court at the Paris Parlement, quote, They cleaved his head in two with a halberd so that he was knocked from his horse and his brains strewn over the pavement. One of his hands was cut clean off and with him they killed one of his valets, who had thrown himself on him to protect him. End quote. Brutal. And in those last moments, Louis of Orleans was no doubt just thinking, just finish it. Slip my throat, it's all I ever... It soon came to light that John had commissioned the whole thing. In the investigation, a person staying at John's hotel was wanted for questioning, but could not be arrested without John's permission. When he was asked for such permission... He was in council with other Princes of the Blood and did not shy away from, yeah, telling them the truth. He had had his cousin butchered, and now his other cousins were rather upset. Reportedly, though, he brushed aside the Duke of Berry, and he did the old, um, hang on a minute, I'm definitely going to answer these questions, but I just need to wee trick. Instead of going to the toilet, however, John jumped on a horse, and accompanied by a bodyguard, fled Paris. Once more, he went north. He had taken care of his rival in France, finally and utterly. Indeed, John the Fearless was now peerless. Now he could return to the Low Countries and put paid to any question of his family's dominance and dominion there. To do this, John would need to crush any opposition to his family and allies and capitalize on the fact that Louis's death had left his allies floundering without a major backer. At the moment, this opposition was in Liege and helders and it's there that we will turn next. But first, speaking of floundering without a major backer, here's an ad break to help us keep the lights on. Welcome back, and good to see the lights are still on. The people of Liège had not been a happy folk for about a century. The lands of Liège straddled the river Meuse and lay roughly between the duchies of Limburg and Brabant. They included some very old and important towns, such as the city of Liège itself, and also Huy, the city from which the oldest known town privileges in the Low Countries originate. Unlike Brabant, Limburg, or indeed Flanders, Holland, and Gélders, Liege was not a fiefdom ruled by a count or a duke, but it was instead a prince-bishopric, ruled by a prince-bishop. The prince-bishop held secular rule, owing his landed title to the Holy Roman Emperor, but also ecclesiastical rule, and was a high-ranking member of the Church. The title was not inherited, but rather made by appointment. This difference did not make Liege exempt from the tumult of the 1300s that we should All be fairly familiar with by now. Just like the other low countries, the 14th century in Liège had also been one of class division, power struggles, rebellions, a touch of the plague, and warfare. In the first half of the 14th century, basic power-sharing mechanisms had been devised in Liège, between the bishop, the clergy, the towns, and the patricians. Similarly to what had happened in Brabant with the Charter of Courtenberg, these were fortified in 1373. The then Prince Bishop, a guy called Jan van Arkel, agreed to the establishment of a council known as the 22. The so-called Peace of the 22 allowed for a decision-making process intended to protect the people of Liège from abuses by the clergy and by the Prince Bishop. After Jan van Arkel, the next Bishop of Liège was Arnold II van Horn from 1378, He had been the Bishop of Utrecht, which had also erupted in sectarian violence, and although he managed to somewhat reconcile the different parties in that conflict, Pope Urban VI moved him to take over Liege. The problem with this, however, is that the schism of the papacy had reinforced itself in 1378. So although Urban VI ruled from Italy, French cardinals had elected an antipope, Clement VII, and he had set up shop in Avignon. The clergy in Liège elected their own bishop, and he was supported by Team French Pope, the anti-Pope Clement. So Liège saw a year of struggle between these two claimants, with Arnold coming out victorious and as the prince-bishop. He would then rule for pretty much a decade. In 1384, the biggest city in the Low Countries, Ghent, went into open rebellion against the Count of Flanders, led by Weavers and the Second Van Artefelder. The audacity of the weavers and other craft guilds inspired similar actions in other towns and cities across the region. Just such workers also took over the city of Liege at the same time. In 1389, the death of Arnold opened up the title of the Prince Bishop, now making it ripe for the taking. In 1390, at the age of 15, enhancing the position of the Valois Burgundy and the Wittelsbach Bavarian families in the Low Countries, John of Bavaria became the bishop-elect of Liege. Remember that John of Bavaria was the brother of the Count of Holland, Zeeland, and Hanno, and the brother-in-law to John the Fearless. But he did not become the prince-bishop. Because of the schism in the Western Church, any appointment was subjected to antipathy and uncertainty. If one group put up their candidate, the opposing group would find their own. John of Bavaria was in accordance with the position of his family and of the Valois-Burgundians on Team Roman Pope. And in 1390, this was a guy called Boniface IX. He had approved the appointment, however, John of Bavaria was an awful ruler, and he asserted his authoritarian approach from very early on. This rankled with the traditions of privileges and liberties that the people of Liege had been acquiring over the previous century they rejected his appointment and within 4 years had gone into open revolt against him as we mentioned earlier prior to having his head cleaved in two louis of orleans had been supporting this rebellion as a part of his power plays against john the feelers louis being on team french pope had convinced benedict the 13th to also support the rebels of liege in 1406 the people of liege elected a new regent and a new anti-bishop. A deputation was sent to Benedict in France to approve the appointment, and the new regent, Henry of Pervez set about the conquest of the entire territory. Soon, John of Bavaria had access to only one fortress and the town of Maastricht, which was put to siege at the end of 1409. The siege was actually looking to be a successful one, and actually broke a few barriers in terms of warfare the rebels used a tactic that would be adopted and become a mainstay on European battlefields for the next centuries up until today, near continuous tactical bombardment. Indeed, before the first siege of Maastricht, gunpowder weaponry had only ever been used in conjunction with long-term starvation tactics, and there is only one recorded instance of bombardment breaching a fortification. Here, however, The rebels used possibly the entire arsenal of the city of Liege, and over the course of about a month and a half, sent over 1,500 bombs into the walls and buildings of Maastricht. So there you go. Constant siege bombardment. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The siege and those conducting it could not endure the extremely harsh winter that came that year. It was lifted, and they all had to return to Liege. John of Bavaria went to his brother, William, the Count of Holland, and he kept up his urgent letters, just requesting help from anybody who would listen. John the Fearless's brother, Anton, now governor of Brabant, was also facing problems. In our previous episode, we saw how the Duke of Helders and Eulich, William, had set out to take back territory and to ensure his right to Eulich. William had died without heirs, and so his younger brother, Reginald IV, became the new duke. He shared his brother's antipathy to Burgundian expansion, and in 1406, supported also by Louis of Orléans, he had set about reclaiming territory from Brabant-Limburg. A year later, he would then push back against Holland for the town of Khorringham. So, when John the Fearless returned to the Low Countries, after having had his main political rival, Louis of Orléans butchered in the street this is roughly the state of things that he came back to John of Bavaria was in serious trouble and crying for help and John the Fearless had begun to assemble an army to come to his aid but he was then obviously more concerned with helping his brother against Helders, because he sent his army there first John then returned to Paris with his brother Anton to deal with the post-murder political situation which was devolving into what would become a civil war. According to the chronicler, Enguerrand de Monstrelet, he had to present himself before the king. When John entered Paris in early 1408, he was given a hero's welcome by the people of the city. While in Paris, he was always armed, though, and stayed in a fairly secure tower. He was obviously worried for his life. He employed a theologian named Jean Petit, to argue his case, and what he presented became famously known as the Justification. Petit argued forcefully, using quotes from scripture, making the case that the Duke of Orléans was a corrupt and treasonous individual who wanted complete power for himself. John the Fearless's hand had been forced to conduct such an egregious deed, merely to protect the king. In the end, John the Fearless and Jean Petit justified tyrannicide, They quoted future spiritual leader Anthony Kiedis and said, I don't don't believe it's bad. And anyway, didn't Louis of Orleans try to kill his royal brother at the Ball of the Burning Men all those years before? Somehow, John came out of this all right with the king. In 1409, Charles VI would absolve him of the crime of killing his brother. But for now, having argued his case, John had to return to deal with the rebellions in the Low Countries. In May 1408, Maastricht was once more put to siege, and again endured heavy continual bombardment. However, in June, John of Bavaria arrived from Holland with an army at his back. He offered an ultimatum to the besieging army that only the most extreme rebels amongst them need suffer consequences, and the rest may return to their homes. This, though, they rejected, by sending him a parchment sealed with cow poo, to which he responded by, hanging some prisoners in full view of all of them. That really escalated quickly. A month later, John of Bavaria had signed an alliance with William, his brother, ensuring military aid from Holland. His entreaties to his other king also began to pay dividends, as now John the Fearless issued his own threats to the rebels and the new regent, Henry of Pervez. The rebels were now facing a combined threat of the biggest rulers of the Low Countries, except for Anton, we remain remained neutral because, strangely, Henry of Pervez was actually his vassal. The alliance between the Ligeois rebels and Helders somewhat faltered, simply because Helders had been subdued by Antoine. So the rebels were well and truly on the back foot. The leaders of the rebellion, though, were clearly pretty shrewd, as they set about running a disinformation campaign, aimed at causing divisions and uncertainty amongst the forces allied against them. They forged letters from the French king to John the Fearless, telling him to stop the offensive immediately. They forged letters from John of Bavaria with content designed to weaken their bonds of alliance. And they also sent people dressed as pilgrims out into the Low Countries to spread word of how Maastricht had fallen and that John of Bavaria had fled, hoping to further incite more support for their rebellion. Then they sent other agents into Maastricht itself, to spread word that there was no sign of any army coming to help them. During these months, the French crown was attempting to negotiate a peace, but John had several reasons to want a military resolution to the matter. The state of the French court was a major concern for him. As always, supporters of the murdered Duke of Orleans had banded around his son into a faction that would become known as the Armagnacs, And it was looking increasingly likely that John would be forced to make battle with them in the future if he wanted to maintain power in France. For him, the failure at Nicopolis over a decade prior had been the only major military expedition in his life, and although he had doubtless learnt from it, he might have felt the need to sharpen his axe, so to speak, and to get a little bit more experience into himself and his troops before facing off against French Armagnac armies. Taking on the bomb-friendly rebel armies of the Ligeois could provide a perfect opportunity for that. In fact, John seems to have been observing the tactics of the rebel army already. When he did later fight the Armagnacs, he appropriated the continual bombardment tactic which they had pioneered at Maastricht, and his forces would use it to great effect. Another thing that John would have had to consider is what effect a successful rebellion in Liege might have on the rebellion-happy workers in his Flemish towns. If he didn't crush this now, the infectious liberal ideas of the past might flare up once more among such factions as the Weavers and the Fullers. As we know, when towns like Ghent went into rebellion, they didn't mess around with it, and that caused no end of strife for the Counts. So here in the bishopric of Liege in late 1408 is a coming together of all these interesting undercurrents which we have been wading through so far in this series. Workers' guilds fighting for their rights, nobles in the Low Countries allying with and fighting against the crowns of their larger neighbours as suited their particular needs and interests, the battle for control of everyone's everlasting souls. And a whole lot of ancestral feuding and infighting at the highest level of politics even though john remained participant in negotiations deep into 1408 he continued to build up his allied forces at tournai and then he shifted them into brabant in mid-september finally on the 20th of september he ended negotiations and went off to begin an offensive together with his brothers-in-law he moved his army into liège A last-ditch attempt by King Charles VI to broker a peace produced an ambassador to John, with the king's direct order to cease immediately on pain of great punishment. John argued with the ambassador that he had come too close to be able to stop without incurring great shame upon himself. He then convinced the ambassador to even join him in the fight. And given that the ambassador had secretly brought along his armour anyway, This was probably the expected outcome. On the 23rd of September, 1408, the combined larger armies of John the Fearless and William VI of Holland, supported by John of Bavaria and other high-ranking low-country nobles, knights, and infantry, met arms with the rebel army of the Ligeois in what has become known as the Battle of Ote. All those years ago at Nicopolis, John had failed due to not having the right people around him not knowing who to listen to, and also by falling victim to being too brash, seeking glory too gallantly, and not being patient enough. A disordered cavalry charge of uppity knights had ended in disaster at the crusade. But here, despite again having the far greater force, John did not fall victim to the same trap of vainglory. Instead, he set up his forces to defend against an attack, and when that attack was not forthcoming, he consulted with his other captains and rationally decided upon a steady march forward. When the two sides finally met, the Ligua rebels were absolutely destroyed, and the high-discipline and well-thought-out approach of John and his council proved crucial. John's tactics would become a blueprint for all future engagements that his troops would undertake. In fact, this day was crucial to the overall reputation of John the Feelers, which had taken some battering following the assassination that he had contrived of his cousin, Engeron de Monstrelet, a Burgundian chronicler, wrote of his conduct during the battle that it, quote, was such that he was praised and honoured by all the knights and others of his company, and although he was frequently hit by arrows and other missiles, he did not, on that day, lose one drop of blood. Old Johnny Nofear. Monstrelay continues, when he was asked after the defeat if they ought to cease from killing the Ligeois, he replied that they should all die together and that he had no wish for them to be taken and ransomed. And this is where things get a little bit gruesome. For John the Fearless, this action was as much about his wider political goals as it was about assisting his brother in law and ally. An example had to be made of these rebels not only so that possible rebels in his other territories remained afraid of the consequences, but also so that the Burgundianization of the Low Countries could continue. He couldn't afford to allow anything to threaten the centralization that his father had commenced, and the rebellion in Liège had done just that. Instantly, the revolt, which had been waging for nearly 15 years, was crushed. The victors swept up the countryside and approached the city of Liege, which had been the epicenter of the entire rebellion. Instead of entering it, they camped outside and ritualistically decapitated ringleaders whom they caught. Within the town walls, the rebellion was also being cast asunder. Members of the clergy who had supported Team French Pope and the rebellion were drowned in the River Meuse. They were drowned by the way because, as spiritual men, Ecclesiastes, their blood was not to be spilled. Drowning though, drowning was fine. Due to the severity of the punishments, John of Bavaria, the bishop-elect, would from now on be known as John the Pitiless, which seems rather apt. 500 hostages were demanded from the city, and these were spread out between the victors and sent off to various places, many of them for years. In October 1408 John convened a great assembly of the Low Country ruling elite in Lille chief amongst all in attendance were the leaders of the Low Countries brought together first by that double wedding way back in the 1380s but now also bound tighter by this allied victory that they had enjoyed together one that had solidified their collective dominance of the region under the chief leadership of John the Fearless This included both of John's brothers, Anton and Philip of Nevers, William of Bavaria, the Count of Holland and his younger brother, John of Bavaria, and also William of Namur. Here they passed judgment on Liège, and they set the terms of its defeat. These were also extremely harsh. According to the terms, no privileges could be granted to the Liégeois without both John the Fearless and William of Bavaria's approval. They and their successors could pass by the River Meuse with or without troops and their minted currencies were to be legal tender in Liège from now on. Furthermore, a few fortresses were to be destroyed, a church was to be built, all the guilds in Liège were abolished, which, can you imagine if the Counts of Flanders had managed to pull that one off? Finally, a huge indemnity of 200,000 French crowns was to be paid to John and William. In fact, so harsh were these terms that John the Pitiless, the victorious bishop-elect of Liège, was extremely upset and turned into one of the greatest opponents to these new restrictions. He lobbied and complained and managed to get some of the forfeited privileges back and was able to delay payment of the reparations. He would, strangely enough, continue to petition for his subjects' rights, right up until 1417. It was then that the German Emperor-elect Sigismund clearly upset that this whole issue and this episode has been centred so much on France and not on Germany, weighed in and revoked the entire judgment made by John and William, restoring the liegeois with their rights. But by then, John the Pitiless probably cared less about this than he would have previously. Just a few days after this, William of Bavaria, the Count of Holland and his older brother, died. That left his teenage daughter, Jacqueline of Bavaria, as the heir to Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. But we all know that Holland had a problem letting women take over, and here came an opportunity knocking for John the Pitiless. He cast asunder his rule of Liege and made a move for Holland. But that's for another episode. Despite huge obstacles, John the Fearless had managed to continue the project that his father had begun, and he guided the Low Countries down the path towards domination by a single family, his own. His political skills, particularly his ability to juggle the contradictory pressures he faced due to his wearing of many different hats, meant that, within five years of his father's death, he had gotten away with the murder of his greatest rival in France, he'd brought the Low Countries more tightly under his sway, and delivered a crushing blow to the ambitions of urban workers in domains under his influence, all without incurring The same kind of damage which had so often been coupled with similar attempts made in the past. It's also just been interesting to see how this French prince used the low countries to bolster his ambitions in France rather than somebody using the power of France against our beloved little swamp. But this path that John the Fearless had embarked upon was, in the end, an extremely dangerous one. For he was going to find out eventually that on this course he was going to be taken on a hard ride, and in doing so, he would end up taking just one bridge too far. But until then, oh no, sorry, Dewey. hang on, hang on, hang on. Before we wrap things up today, we want to send out a massive thank you. Firstly, to all you our lovely, beautiful listeners, we know it's been a while. Thank you very much for sticking with us, and we hope to get back to regular programming soon. Also, we need to send out a massive thank you to our supporters on Patreon. This show is produced independently of any media organization. Republic of Amsterdam Radio is just us. Hello! Hey, Dave. Yes? Three guys who think reading obscure chronicles written by French dudes who died 600 years ago and then telling the crazy stories that come out of it while relating it to red hot chili peppers lyrics is just a great way to spend our free time through your contributions we are able to spend more time on this project and make it as great as we feel it can and should be we love to give nicknames to our patreon supporters as a token of our appreciation so a huge thank you to d de jonger we love you kiddo also Obrigado to Sergio Teixeira da Silva. Excuse my pronunciation, but thank you. Power Surge. Your electrical shock into our Patreon account just made us black out. And finally, Zombles. And with a name like Zombles, you don't need a nickname from us. You have been extremely generous to give us a $5 an episode pledge. So for that reason, you know what's happening. We're going to say your name five times. Zombles. Zombals. Zombals. Dave. Zombals. Zombals. Okay, now we're actually done. Totsins. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.